Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, thank you so much for who you are. And thank you, Lord, that you speak into our lives. Lord, this morning, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak into our lives this morning. That you would speak to our minds, to our hearts, to our motivations, to everything that we do and say, that we could be more like you. So speak, O Lord. Speak into us. And open up your desires and your plans to our hearts and minds through your Holy Spirit that we can know what you are calling us to do as your followers. We again thank you and praise you for this time. And we lift all this to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our amazing Savior. Amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 22 is where we're going to be today. So your Bibles, your apps, whatever you read on. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or don't have an app on your device, uh, we have Bibles in the pews. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't know where 2 Kings is at, open to the first three or four pages of your Bible. Find the table of contents. Uh, You're going to find a a section called the Old Testament. And you'll find 2 Kings about a a third of the way down the list of books uh, within the Old Testament. So uh, that's where we're going to be this morning is 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Now, the reason I'm up here sitting rather than standing is twofold. First off, I just got back from church camp and spent a week with a bunch of teenagers and I'm exhausted. But the second reason is this morning I want to begin with something not as upbeat and and light. I want to start with something heavy this morning. Uh, Growing up, and I've alluded to this in in some of my uh, stories and things that I've told to everyone Uh, in my time here. Growing up, I was severely abused by one of my family members. Uh, I had a family member who, um, in anger, would grab my arm and whip me around. Uh, He would pick me up by one arm, grab me on the bicep portion of the arm, and would pick me up and would swing me around in in discipline, what he called discipline. I spent a lot of time at doctor's offices and therapists as a child. Um, In kindergarten, I had a teacher who discovered through uh, what she observed that something wasn't quite right with me physically and uh, called a doctor for me, um, got my parents involved. And to this day, uh, I don't want your pity or anything. I'm not telling this because of that. Um, To this day, I I have physical limitations uh, because of some of the... Uh, abuse and some of the damage that was done to my body as a result of what that person did um, in my life. Um, Fast forward a few years, um, my family dynamic changed, um, and that person didn't have the access that he had had prior, and and so I didn't endure that abuse anymore. But if you know anything about uh, the results of what happens to a child as, as a result of abuse, or neglect, even uh, mental abuse, or physical or sexual, whatever it may be, if you know the results of what happens to a child who has gone through abuse, uh, you can probably conclude that I had a rough childhood just in behavioral issues that I had. I, I was constantly acting out. Um, I, I was a troublemaker. Um, I got in trouble constantly. 
Um, I had to ride the bus when I was a child, and I got kicked off that bus more times than I can count. Um, but I was always in trouble. I was always causing problems uh, for my teachers and the adults in my life. And then I got saved at a church camp when I was in fourth grade, and God began to turn my life around. Because at that time, again, if you know anything about child who are, who are abused, I have a brother that's nine years younger than I am. And in fourth grade, my mother started seeing the signs of me abusing my childhood, my, my kid brother. And so my mom had come to me and said, you either get this fixed or we'll find a way to fix it for you. We'll find somebody that can help you. And God, I, can, I have one of those stories where I experienced God in a way in fourth grade when I got saved that my mom noticed that that suddenly stopped. And it wasn't anything that I had done. It was the Holy Spirit changing me from the inside out. It was miraculous. It was, it was a change that I cannot explain. As a, as a little kid, 10 or 11 years old, I couldn't have done it. But God did it in me. As I began to progress and move forward and looking back, I can see that a lot of what God did involved some men that God intentionally placed in my life. I've told the story of my granddad that used to take me out on uh, his work uh, runs that he had and, and some of the stuff that uh, he would do with me. Well, my grandfather uh, in my early childhood was literally the only man that I trusted. Um, I would shy away from men in every circumstance, family gatherings. Um, I did not spend time with my uncles. I was scared of them. I thought all men were violent. And my grandfather taught me otherwise. My grandfather was that man that, that spent time investing, showing me that, that men could care. And then in middle school, I started attending a church. My friend in middle school invited me to youth group. And a man named Ken Wooster began spending time with me. Uh, he would invite me and my little circle of friends to his house because his daughter was the same age uh, that we were. And so we went over to his house often. And there were many, many late Sunday nights when Ken and I would have difficult conversations and he would spend time with me working through my issues. I tell this story because I just got done at a camp where I sat and counseled no less than a dozen children, students, teenagers, who have been raped, who have been abused by family members, who have been severely neglected. And I can tell you story after story after story of students that I saw one year at our teen camp and saw a few years later, and they came to me and said, Chad, thank you. Because before I came to camp, I was one kid, and after camp, because of what you did and because someone in my youth ministry invested in me, I'm different now. God is doing something. We are surrounded by a society that is being filled with children and students who are at risk. I was an at-risk student. I was a student that according to statistics, I shouldn't have even graduated high school. I should be on the street somewhere or behind bars. Statistically, that's where I should be, according to my upbringing. But because a handful of men chose to see grace in Christ and saw that grace living in me, 
They chose to take the hard route and intentionally speak into my life. And today we're going to look at a, a child who was an at-risk child in the Bible. Because the Bible does address this issue and, and we need to talk about it. Um, and so I want you to take your Bibles or your apps and I want you to read, look with me. We're going to start in 2 Kings, we're going to look at 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23 opens with a, a young boy named Josiah. Now Josiah's father, Ammon... If you go back and read chapter 21, the end of chapter 21, we find that Josiah's dad has been murdered in his childhood. Uh, Ammon is murdered when Josiah is only eight years old. Can you imagine an eight-year-old losing their father to murder? Guys, that's how old my son is, my oldest. I can't imagine him having to endure the pain and sorrow that that must have brought. But I want you to see with me what Josiah does. So Josiah takes the throne at eight years old, and when he is 26, he begins the process of renovating the temple. Because previous to this, all the king, or most of the kings had neglected the temple, and the temple had become run down, it became dirty, they had put idols inside of it, they were worshiping other gods inside of the temple, and so Josiah comes in and says, this is an embarrassment to my kingdom, and he says, I'm going to renovate the temple, and then we find in chapter 22 that in the midst of the renovations that the high priest actually finds one of the books of the law. Now, most people believe he found the book of Deuteronomy. And he brings it to Josiah and has the, Josiah's secretary sit and read to him the entire book in front of him. And Josiah mourns at how disobedient his kingdom is to the word of God. And so he begins to reform. Now, look at chapter 23, starting in verse 1. It says, then the king, Josiah, called together all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read the book in their hearing, all the words, the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple. Now stop for just a second. One of the men of God... It surrounded Josiah, and I'm going to talk about this in just a second, brings the book and says, Josiah, you need to read this. And he has the secretary of the king read the book to Josiah, and then fast forward, Josiah says, bring everybody together, and we need to understand this. And who do you see in verse 2 reads the book of the law, the book of the covenant? Josiah himself reads this book. To the people. Now pick up in verse 3. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commandments, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Josiah brings revival to the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel for decades has been worshiping other gods, has been worshiping idols. They have turned from the Lord. 
And Josiah is the one that brings the word of God back and brings them back into the pledge of obeying the covenant that God had for them. But what led to this? Because remember I mentioned just a minute ago, Josiah was an at-risk child. He had lost his father to murder. But luckily for Josiah, we find in chapter 22 that Hilkiah the priest and a handful of other men, I'll read them off to you because I think it's important to, to know this. Hilkiah the priest, Achim, Echabar, Shaphan, and Asian all came together to, to raise Josiah up. In other words, Josiah, despite the fact of being high risk, there was a group of men that surrounded him and loved on him and taught him the ways of the Lord. And how do we know this? Because if you go back to the beginning of chapter 22, before Josiah has been read the law, before he has made this covenant with God, in chapter 22 at the very beginning, it says that Josiah was a godly king and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right before he even knew what was right. And you know how he did what was right? Because these men invested in his life. These men looked at the situation that Josiah was surrounded by and said, you know what, this young boy needs a godly father figure. He needs a community of godly men to bring him up right. Why do you think that at age 26, Josiah suddenly says the temple needs to be repaired? Because he had godly men that was teaching him godly principles. Guys, we live in a crazy, God-rebelling society, much like Josiah's. Josiah's society did not value the Lord. They did not value the covenant with the Lord. They did not value the word of the Lord. They didn't even know it because they had lost it. Our society has turned from God. And, and guys, we can make all the arguments and we can theorize how or why. But I think the better question is how do we make a difference? How do we change our culture for the better? You want to change this crazy culture? Great, so do I. But I can tell you right now that our culture is not going to change by us sitting at a keyboard and typing things on social media. That is, you're not convincing anybody to change their minds about their stances on social issues by typing something or sharing a picture. That does no good. It is, it is possibly the least effective of all the ways to impact somebody's life. Because I can tell you right now, I share uh, my, my, my Facebook and Instagram and Twitter with a wide variety of people with a wide variety of opinions. And I can tell you right now, not a single one of them has even come close to convincing me that I'm wrong. None of you in this room have convinced me that I'm wrong. Because social media does not convince anybody, people. Social media builds up our own viewpoints, maybe, and maybe encourages us in some ways, but it is not convincing anybody that their viewpoint is incorrect. We're also not convincing anybody to change their ways by insulting the culture or politicians. That is, again, one of the least effective means of creating change. You can insult whatever politician or whatever stance they have, 
And no one's going to listen to that other than the people that agree with you. It is not effective. We want our culture to change, then let's do it in a way that actually brings change. Let's do it in a way that glorifies the Word of God. Complaining about how bad things are also is not going to bring change. As a matter of fact, it probably does the reverse effect because complaining brings no good. Go read God's Word. Complaining is never a positive attribute or characteristic. So how do we bring change? What do we do as followers of Christ to change this crazy culture that we live in? Well, here's my big idea. Here's the idea that I want you to walk away from today. And it's this. Cultures change when people invest in the change of that culture. And I know that's a confusing statement, but let me explain. Cultures change when people invest in the change of that culture. Investment involves sacrifice. When you invest in the stock market, it means you have to sacrifice a sum of money in hopes that that sum will bring you a return. If we're talking about cultural collateral, what do you think we have to invest in? What has the most potential to bring change? I'll tell you right now, the most potential to bring change into our culture is the next generation. The next generation is who is going to bring the change that we so desperately want to see take place in our culture. But that means we're going to have to sacrifice and invest in that next generation. We're going to have to take some time and do what those men in Josiah chapter, or 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 14 did, where a group of men came around Josiah and invested in him. That investment yielded a massive return for the land of Israel because suddenly the land of Israel started following God again. You want to know where the next revival is? Look at our teenagers and our children. That's where the next revival is. Did you know historically every major revival that has ever taken place in our society and in the world began with teenagers and young adults? Did you know that? Not a single revival in all of history has ever happened as a result of someone over the age of 30. Where should our investment be? With our children and our teenagers. But how many of the adults in our society have neglected our teenagers and children? And go, you know what? That's for someone else. I'm going to complain about where our culture is going, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Not anything actually that will make an actual difference. We have an opportunity. I want to read you Matthew, 1, or Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. It says this, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Keep mind of this question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called to him the little children and placed a child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Then fast forward to verse 10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Our neglect of the next generation is in direct disobedience to God's calling to us. And I don't mean to sound harsh, but clearly as an at-risk child myself who benefited from a handful of men investing in my life, I want to see the next generation come up in a godly way, in a way that impacts this culture for the name of Jesus Christ. And guys, today we have an amazing opportunity to do just that. We have an amazing opportunity to invest in the lives of students and children. And so I've got a video that I want to show you, and then after that video, we're going to talk about what that means. I want to introduce to you Richard. Um, am I getting, you're the regional director for Teach One to Lead One, uh, which is what we're talking about today. This is an amazing ministry that goes into the schools and teaches Christian principles to at-risk students uh, in middle schools and high schools. Um, Richard, can you tell us a little bit about Teach One to Lead One? Yeah, Teach One to Lead One is a community mentoring program that teaches universal principles to lead at-risk kids into a life of purpose and potential. So we take volunteers from the community, from churches, and we go into public schools and behavioral treatment centers, and uh, we teach uh, character and leadership development in the context of healthy adult relationships. Uh, So you keep using the word universal principles, and it, it was actually mentioned in the video if you were listening. Talk to us about what those universal principles are. So we define a universal principle as a truth that we live by that's true for anyone, anywhere, anytime. So because we are going into public schools, um, we reference it a little bit differently. So it's all based on Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We just don't use that language, otherwise schools would not let us in. And as you know, you've seen for years that public schools have been just slamming the door shut on anything faith-based. So we kind of found a crack in the door. So we call them universal principles. Uh, Instead of saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, we call it humility. Or pure in heart, we call it integrity. You know, the merciful, we call that compassion. And there's 10 of them that we teach. Um, Respect, integrity, self-control, courage, compassion, excellence, enthusiasm, teamwork, humility, and honor. And uh, we do it in a way that's fun and interactive. And uh, it's like you saw in the video, it's a, it's a transformational process for the kids simply by showing up and giving them an element of truth that they don't have in their life. Yeah. So we complain a lot about the fact that we don't get to pray in school anymore. But we have an opportunity to change things in a different spiritual way now. Guys, let's be honest. Prayer is never going to be put back in schools. Not unless a massive Holy Spirit-led revival takes place in the United States. We're not going to get that back. But we have a great chance to get into the schools and not just say, oh, students, you need to have a 10-minute prayer time. We have a chance to go in and spend an hour with them teaching them God's Word. And so I want to talk to Richard a little bit about, okay, I've been here nine months. And I'll be honest, Scottsdale is an affluent community compared to any other community I've lived in. And I've spent a lot of time looking for where the needs are in our community. And you may be saying, yeah, at-risk teens, blah, 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 blah. But we don't really have that here in Scottsdale. But I can tell you nothing could be farther from the truth. Tell us a little bit about the need that we have within our schools. 
Yeah, so first of all, you know, we look around, there are nice buildings, there's nice cars, and we think that it's such a nice area, there isn't kids who are really struggling. Um, there is, and in fact, just down the road at Sorrel High School, I mean, we were mentoring kids who are homeless and kicked out of their house. So you do have that low-income aspect in Scottsdale, um, but at-risk is, is, is more than just low-income. Um, you know, it can, it can deal with abuse, like you were talking about. Um, some of the big needs we see in our community are substance abuse, um, and we see broken homes, and so kids are neglected, and, uh, they, and sometimes they do have money, and so they have access to things that they shouldn't have access to, and there's no parental guidance. Um, you know, depression is a, big, is a big thing we see with students. Um, you have uh, one or both parents of foreign descent, which makes it hard for them to assimilate to our culture. Um, so, the, the, you know, truancy, the, you know, failing classes, the, the list goes on. Yeah. And, and absolutely, in our neighborhood here, in your church's community, there's a ton of at-risk kids. Yeah. Um, at-risk, like he said, does not necessarily mean they're homeless or that they're low income. And I guarantee you, if I had challenged you to think about it, I know plenty of people that have lots of money and they are miserable and their lives are broken and they're abusive and they have broken homes and terrible home situations. Money does not guarantee stability. It does not guarantee mental, emotional, or spiritual health. As a matter of fact, I would make the argument that an excess of money actually makes it harder to have those things. There's great need in our school system, and we have an opportunity through Teach One lead, to Lead One to continue work in Saguaro High School. We have some of you sitting in this room who are mentors with Teach One to Lead One over at Saguaro High School. Um, and if you've got questions, we'd love to talk to you. Nikki McKee over here has been doing it for a long, long time, um, and she could tell you all about what this ministry does and how impactful it is to these teenagers who are desperately seeking someone to invest in them. Uh, but we also have a brand new opportunity to get into Ingleside Middle School. And actually, the cool thing is, is I, I, as I've been praying about ways for First Southern to get involved in our community, um, Ingleside reached out to us. They're begging us to bring mentors in. They're asking the church to provide for them adults that would just spend one hour a week. That's all they're asking is one hour per week. So Richard, will you tell us a little bit about how does Teach One, Lead One work? What do we have to do to prepare for? What does a person have to do to be qualified to even do it? Because we know you don't just walk into a high school or a middle school these days. You can't do that, even if you're a parent. Um, so tell us about what, if, if I wanted to get involved in Ingleside or Saguaro with Teach One, Lead One, what would I have to do and what would it look like? Yeah, good question. So, first of all, I will be over in the, what do we call it? In the, the Welcome Center? The Welcome Center, yes. Yep. This way, I don't know where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be in the Welcome Center. Come talk to me. I'd love to meet you and walk through that with you. But we make it as simple as possible. So, um, all of our mentors, uh, we, they're all volunteers, but we train them and we certify them. Uh, it's all, and most of it's done online, so it makes it super easy. You could do it on your, time, on your own time, watching videos, and we do a background check and things like that. But... Anyone's qualified to be a mentor, um, with Teach One to Lead One, we would say over 19 years old, so they're a year removed from high school, and then, um, you know, we want your lifestyle to reflect the principles we're teaching, 
Um, that way we have integrity about it. We're not being hypocritical working with the kids. And the only other qualification is we want someone who can be available. So, you know, if you can't, if you can't be there an hour a week for, for um, it's about 14 weeks long. Three, it's a semester, so three months. Um, it's always the same time each week with the same kids on the same day of the week. So it's easy to, to factor into your week and make it just a part of your routine. Uh, we're going to be starting up mid-September, I think, is, right. is kind of the time frame. Uh, and so here's the thing. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you, we're going to have a response time in just a moment, and I want you to prayerfully, I, I don't want you to go, you know, that's just not for me. No, no, no. I want you to stop, and I want you to ask the Lord if that's for you. This is not your decision. This is God telling you what you're supposed to be doing. I want you to ask God about this. I want you to ask Him sincerely, Lord, if, is this something you're calling me to do? And if it is, or if you think that God may be just giving you a little bit of a, a hint or an itch toward this, just get the information. It's not a commitment. I want you to sign up and say, you know what, I'll, I'll look at this. I'll take a serious look as to whether or not this is something I'm supposed to be doing for the Lord. Um, and so what I want you to do at the end of the service, when we're done and after the response time and everything, I want you, if you feel God calling you to at least think about it, I want you to walk out the doors and I want you to go over to our welcome center. If you physically can't make it over there, I'd like for you to come grab me at the end of the service um, and come talk to me and I'd like to get your information. Physical limitations are not an issue. We can get you there. There's handicap access in every school. It's actually required by federal and state law. We can get you there. We can get you sat down with these students uh, investing I don't want you to look at those factors. I want you to ask the Lord if He is asking you to do this. And again, if, if you feel like He's giving any inkling at all towards it, I want you to come and see Richard, uh, preferably Richard. If you can't go see Richard, come talk to me and get yourself signed up to begin thinking about it and at least looking at what that might look like for you. Uh, don't consider your calendar. Don't consider those things right now. Consider what the Lord's leading is in your life. Richard... Thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Let's give him a round of applause. This man does some great work for the Lord. So we're going to now move into a time of response um, to the Lord. What is God calling us to do? And so uh, I want to take some time now and just say again, if you feel like you're just not qualified or this isn't for you, I want you to take some time and go, God, is this for me? Will you join me in prayer as we, we move into a time of response? Almighty God, thank you so much for today. And Lord, I thank you. God, I'm praising you for this amazing opportunity that we have as a church to invest in the lives of children and teenagers. And Lord, these opportunities don't come along very often, especially in today's society. And so Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity. But Lord, we pray that we would listen to your leading in this. Lord, that we would not just take our our impulse responses and say oh this isn't for me lord we pray that we would listen to you in your direction in this lord we thank you again for this opportunity and we praise you for who you are and we pray all of these things in jesus name amen if you need to pray our altar is available to you to you if you need to talk myself and pastor josh is right up here at the front we'd love to have conversation, especially if you want to know more about a life-changing relationship about Jesus Christ. And of course, at the end of the service, Josh will be up here at the front and I'll be in the back uh, available and, and ready to, to ask any, answer any questions that you may have. So let's stand and let's respond.